a week or so after Guy and I get back home from teaching this retreat, we're actually going to India for a month. And the main thing we're going to do on that trip is to go on a Buddhist pilgrimage, uh, visiting the various holy sites, the sites associated with the life of the Buddha. It's a trip that we've wanted to do for a long time, and the various factors haven't come together, the main ones being teaching here or teaching at Spirit Rock at the, the best times of year to go to do that. And we changed this year to teaching now in the early part of this retreat, so we're able to do it. And I've just been getting so excited by thinking about that, to actually be in the places where the Buddha lived and taught to go to the places that you read about so often in the suttas. Most suttas begin, you know, thus have I heard the Buddha was living in the town of the Kurus, near Kurusadhamma, or in Anattapindika's park, or at Savati, and that we'll be in those places and be able to actually have that direct connection to his life and his teachings. It's just very inspiring. Uh, someone we know who, who has already done one of these pilgrimages talked about how powerful it was for her to actually walk, as they say, in the footsteps of the Buddha, to do walking meditation in one of these places, and how now when she comes back, now that she's back home or on retreat, she brings that image, that experience to mind and feels herself walking in the footsteps of the Buddha as she does her walking meditation. So if you ever find your walking getting a little dry here, as it sometimes can do, invite that as an image for you. And who knows, maybe there's a future Buddha here among us, and we are actually all walking in the footsteps of a Buddha. We don't know, just to hold that possibility. So I've been thinking a lot about India in the time of the Buddha, and it was quite an amazing time. What, you know, just the stories and descriptions about how alive with uh, spiritual search it was, how whole towns would come out to hear the Buddha when he uh, arrived nearby and, and ask him all these questions about enlightenment and freedom and suffering and all of the different philosophical understandings. And you can still feel that in India today. It's one of the things that I love about going there. I've been there a number of times already. It's, just that sense of the spirituality pervading the whole culture in, in all of these wonderful ways. And it would be like today, say Joseph was giving a talk and the whole town of Barry decided, you know, let's go hear Joseph talk and ask him questions about the Dhamma. We're not quite there yet, but who knows, one day <laughs> it may be that pervasive. But uh, Indians are also, um, a, there's a very natural philosophical bent in the society and the culture, very, uh, this questioning, degree of intelligence in looking at these things. And so all these different teachers and teachings going through at the time. And one of the schemas that my understanding is was quite common as people grappled with these questions about suffering, about enlightenment, was uh, this one about uh, an illness. So that the fact that there, there's an illness, there's some kind of problem, we the, to find the cause of it, to find the cure, and then what the treatment is. And so the Buddha took up this metaphor when he formulated the Four Noble Truths, this profound teaching that he began his, uh, his, uh, his whole career of teaching with. The Four Noble Truths 
that tell us that there is suffering in life. There's a cause of suffering, which is desire. There's the possibility of freedom from suffering, and there's a path that leads to that freedom. This mirrors that, that uh, metaphor, the four steps. So you'll often read in the suttas descriptions of the Buddha as doctor and the Dhamma as medicine. It's a great way to hold it. But when we hear that teaching on the Four Noble Truths, without understanding, it seems like more suffering, or it seems very depressing, you know. And you'll often hear um, it misunderstood in that way. But the Buddha be did begin his search because of suffering, definitely. You probably all know the story of his life as a young prince, living a, a great luxury, every sense pleasure was indulged. And he came across the four heavenly messengers, the messengers of old age, sickness, death, and then a bhikkhu or a renunciate. And they inspired in him this quest for awakening, for finding a way out of suffering. Because he saw that in the things that people normally hold on to, happiness or freedom was not to be found. This is what he said. He said, what if I, who am subject to decay and death, were to seek my happiness in that which is subject to decay and death. Would that be to my benefit and well-being? Suppose that I, who, am, who are subject to decay and death, were to seek my happiness in that which is beyond decay and death, in that which is deathless, immortal. Would that be to my benefit? And obviously for him the answer was yes. That is the direction he had to look in. So that was beyond these conditioned experiences of life and death. And so he began his search, began um, a number of years, I think six years of um, both concentration practices and also really extreme ascetic practices where the belief was if you mortified the body enough through not eating and not bathing and all these other kind of um, stressful things, it would actually release the Atman, the soul, to, to, to go to heaven. Luckily for us, it didn't work. Otherwise, we'd all be here eating a grain of rice a day and, and, and trying to figure this out. He realized that the body needed to actually be cared for. I talked a little bit about this in my opening talk. Um, for, for practice to really deepen. So he took some food. And at that point, the other ascetics that he'd been practicing with just left him and gave up. He's gone the, onto the luxurious life and, and given up the true practice. But this was enough for him to um, have the energy and the determination to sit down under the Bodhi tree and become enlightened said that he spent six weeks in the vicinity of the Bodhi tree just contemplating, to say, the bliss of enlightenment, just opening to everything that he had understood, and then was motivated to teach, and so set off to find those five friends that he had been practicing with, the five other ascetics. And on the way, uh, came across another spiritual practitioner, another wanderer, who was struck by the countenance of the Buddha, how handsome and 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 confident and radiant he looked and basically said, you know, who are you? What's happened? And the Buddha makes his bold pronouncement. He says, I am an all-transcender, an all-knower. I have no teacher in all the world. I alone am enlightened. And he goes on a bit like, the foot guy goes, really? And he goes, yes. And he goes on a bit like this. And finally, this guy says, well, good for you, my friend. 
and walks off in the other direction, shaking his head. So the Buddha realized that just kind of giving this very um, uplifting kind of glorified version of, of his experience wasn't going to bring people along in the practice. So as he continued walking, he thought about this. How can I explain to people what I've experienced and how they too can find a way out of suffering? And so when he arrived in Sarnath in the Deer Park, he found his five friends. This is the teaching that he gave, the Four Noble Truths. Uh, the, the sutta is called the Dhamma Chaka Pawatana Sutta, setting in, in motion the wheel of the Dhamma. It really is considered to be the beginning of his teaching. And it became the core of his, his dispensation for the next 45 years of his life. This was the centerpiece of it. As Ajahn Sumedho says, if we lost all the other teachings, the Four Noble Truths would be enough. That's all we need to practice for awakening. Because it addresses the human condition. It says, this is our experience in this deep, profound, and direct way. And then says, yes, but there is a way out of suffering and goes on to expand on that way through the Noble Eightfold Path. So it takes ex existential question and gives this very pragmatic, very down-to-earth answer to it. It's quite an amazing uh, teaching that he came up with. So he be begins with this first noble truth of dukkha, of suffering. This is our illness, our sickness. And the diagnosis is you know, there is suffering in life. You'll often hear it quoted as, and I've, I've listened to you know, various things you know, on the radio, you'll hear, oh, someone's talking about Buddhism. And they say, yes, Buddhism, life is suffering. That's what the Buddha said. And I always kind of cringe a little, because he didn't say that. He said, inherent in life is suffering. There is suffering. This is a truth. As we are in this human body or any body, there will be suffering. So it's not actually pessimistic. It's just pragmatic. It's describing things the way they are. And it's our, it's our existential dilemma. Here we are with all these possibilities of a human life, and so commonly our experience is suffering in all these different forms. And so he's looking at this question, why, why do we suffer? What, what is life all about? How do we find happiness? Again, like a doctor diagnosing the disease, what's wrong with us? What's the sickness here? But the other is interesting thing about um, the way he framed this teaching is it's a noble truth. It's noble suffering. So what, why is suffering noble? What is noble about suffering? Well, suffering doesn't have to be noble, of course. But it becomes noble when it brings us to the Dhamma, when it awakens something in us that starts us on our search begins this uh, begins the opening of a possibility of an end of suffering. So it becomes noble when we find a path in it, when suffering is actually this doorway that leads us into practice and into understanding. The other day, uh, Guy and I went to visit Panthea in hospital, our dear friend Yogi who fell the other day and fractured her kneecap, and she's doing quite well considering. Difficult, challenging circumstances, a lot of pain, but she was 
very bright when we spoke to her and, and could just tell the, the fruits of her practice even in this difficult situation. But just being in the hospital, this is a realm of suffering. Seeing, you know, as all the open doors you walk by and the people in all the different situations, they hadn't planned on being there. They didn't say, you know, great, let me, you know, book into the hospital for October. That's where I'd like to be. It's just the nature of the body through injury, through illness, through just aging and the different things that happen. There we are. The body is frail. It's, it's it, our experience of health that we might currently have is fleeting, is temporary. And so it just really brought home this fragility of life, the, the, the fact that for, for most of us, for all of us at some point or other, that will be our experience. And actually for those people, they're lucky to be in hospital. You know, they have some form of medical insurance, unlike many people in this country or of course in the world, there's actually something good happening there. But it just, this, this is the nature of the human condition, old age, sickness and death illness and injury. I also called my father, so just last night or the night before, he's in Australia, he's in his 80s, my mother died a little, little over 10 years ago, and he's just in that natural progression of, of contraction that happens. He, you know, in some ways he's basically okay, but just that sense of, of losing the possibilities of a life this narrowing of possibilities that happens as you age. And so it's my doorway into being, sitting with this truth as I talk to him on the phone, as I do regularly, you know, how are you? And it's like this and that. And, you know, he's basically fairly equanimous about it, but life is challenging when you, when you, can, when you get to that age. And every time I talk to him, he not soon into the conversation begins with a litany of all the people he knows and who's in hospital and who's not doing well and whose funeral he went to. He goes to a lot of funerals. At that age, you go to a lot of funerals. It's just the nature of things. He's also a church organist, so he plays for a lot of funerals, or he used to do it more, actually. So funerals were a big part of his life. And so one day I asked him, you know, Dad, how do you open to that? How do you keep your heart open? And I don't think he thinks very much about keeping his heart open, actually. But he just said, you just get used to it. It's just the way things are. And, and so he's come up with all these euphemisms he's picked up for when people die. So instead of saying, you know, so-and-so passed away, he'll say, oh, so-and-so's fallen off his perch. <laughs> or there's so-and-so passed his use-by date. <laughs> this is what we do. We, we can't quite say it even. You know, dead, death, it's so final. So we find ways of, of, of making it okay. It's understandable because at that age, for him, it's all around him, old age, sickness, and death. This is the human condition. This is what the Buddha was talking about. This word dukkha that we usually translate as suffering um, has actually a wide range of meanings, my understanding is in the Pali from the greatest, deepest suffering to the slightest discomfort can all be included in this word dukkha. So we usually, I usually like to translate it as suffering. To me, it's the one that has that largest range. But you can hear translations like stress or anguish, unreliability, dissatisfaction, 
um, imperfection, all of these convey something of the essence of this word. But I think someone was mentioned this in the talk, mostly people don't want to hear about it. They don't want to hear about suffering or old age sickness and death. It's like, I'm okay, you know, keep that away as long as possible. But it's not news. Like impermanence, this is not news that there's suffering in life. Suffering of heartache, of, of your romantic attachments that have ended, of divorce and uh, the challenges around raising children and the body and our own illness, others' illness, loss of jobs or money, whatever it might be. Not news, human condition over all of existence. I actually found this real, I thought it was funny, funny little book. It appeared in the teacher room at Spirit Rock and then I found the whole of it online because it was written in 1807, so it's out of copyright. Just testify to this fact that it's not news. It's called The Book of Human Miseries. <laughs> and it's this page by page descriptions of all of the ways life is suffering. And it, the title is The Book of Human Mis Miseries, The Groans of Sam Samuel Sensitive and Timothy Testy. So if you're ever cataloging everything that goes wrong in the day, maybe you're Samuel Sensitive or Timothy Testy for the day, with a few supplementary notes from Mrs. Testy and additional groans by Sir Harry Neville, Miss D. Testy and little Nettie Testy. And it's divided into chapters on home and fashion and social life and the country. Again, just this litany of all the stuff that's uncomfortable or awkward or problematic in life. And so one of them, here's one. Suddenly finding safe in your pocket three or four letters of the most pressing consequence entrusted to your care a week or a fortnight before by a person hardly known to you upon the faith of your promise to put them into the post within the hour. <laughs> and to me, I just thought that's like finding an email way down in the list that you should have answered. You know, oh no, you know, this, this is the suffering that we have on a small level. The Buddha was a little more refined and restrained in his descriptions of, no, actually not restrained, more, more deliberate in his descriptions of suffering. It goes, this book goes on at things, simple things like a standing screen that constantly belies its name. <laughs> it's endless. When the Buddha talked about dukkha, he talked about the three kinds of dukkha. Dukkha is ordinary suffering, and that's just dukkha dukkha. Dukkha is produced by change, viparinama dukkha, and the dukkha of conditioned states, sankara dukkha. Now this first dukkha, dukkha dukkha, that's the one we all know really easily. It's everyday suffering. And again, this is the Buddha's description. Birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are dukkha. We'd all agree. But here's the kicker. Not getting what you want is dukkha. Getting what you don't want is dukkha. Being separated from what you love is dukkha. That's the one that's just there all the time, isn't it? Getting what you don't want, not getting what you do want, being separated from what you love. 
just to see the pervasiveness of that and how it's all about our relationship to objects and experience is this central part of dukkha. The experiences get more subtle as it goes on. So viparinama dukkha is just the inherent unsatisfactoriness of anything conditioned. Even pleasant experiences have this because they have to end. Even the most sublime meditation states, the absorptions, the Buddha saw their unsatisfactoriness because you have to come out of them. They all come apart in some way or another, sooner or later, usually sooner than we want. A beautiful day like today, it was just glorious. It ends. The leaves fall, the colors change. This is viparinama dukkha. Often, if you're waiting for some experience, I mean, even like lunch, and it was a good lunch today, wasn't it? As soon as you began it, its ending was there. Even the pizza comes to an end. Each bite takes you closer to that. This is viparinama dukkha. And the last sankara dukkha is a more subtle version of that, of just every conditioned thing being inherently unstable, inherently unreliable. And the effort it takes to keep those things together. This is the energy, the effort we're always putting into trying to create our experience and have it be a certain way. The Buddha, when he looked at the world, said this about it. It disintegrates, and therefore it is called the world. It's a very different view. We think it's solid, and therefore it's called the world. The Buddha said it disintegrates, and therefore it is called the world. Now what disintegrates? The eye disintegrates, the ear disintegrates, the nose, the tongue, taste, body consciousness, body consciousness and their corresponding sense data. It disintegrates and therefore it is called the world. It's a very different way of looking at our experience, but it's the truth of things. We see this in meditation. As we get so quiet, we see the ephemeral nature of all of experience. I can remember sitting in this hall after a long, quiet sitting and opening my eyes and just seeing almost the oppressive nature of sights and sounds and having to create a world as I went out of the meditation hall, come back into some kind of being. This is Sankara Dukkha. So this word Dukkha or suffering, it, it doesn't mean, have to mean that life is full of gloom and doom, you know, that no one likes me, this is all terrible, it's all falling apart, you know, what's the point of all this? This is not what the Buddha was talking about. We can actually be doing quite well. We can be loved and have good relationships and job and home and everything seem to be going well and still feel this subtle sense of discontentment, of things not quite being right, this sense of incompleteness. For many of us, this is what actually brings us onto the path. These questions about why am I here? What is life all about? What is the meaning of this existence? What's the point of it? Where does this lead to? How do I hold this? How do I understand it? What happens when I die? Our culture tends to tell us that 
what we have to do is get all the factors together in the right, right way and then we'll be happy. You know, look a certain way, dress a certain way, have certain things, have the right job or relationship or number of children or whatever, and then we should be happy. And it puts that message out again and again. It's very understandable that we start to believe it after a while. All the advertisements of, you know, what a happy life should look like. I'm often, um, you know, these advertisements of being on holiday in some tropical location and people are kind of just floating around and they never show the mosquitoes and the intestinal bugs that you catch or, you know, sunburn or things like that. I can remember being on Maui a while ago. You know, it's quite a beautiful setting and going out for dinner in a little cafe somewhere and nearby just noticing this couple, and there they were, who knows, fairly young, I don't know whether on their honeymoon or whatever, the whole meal they didn't say a word to each other. You could just feel the tension in that table. There they were in Maui, tropical paradise, you know, meant to be so romantic. It's not reality. It's a fiction that we make up and believe. So we don't want to see it. The Buddha actually said, there is one thing, O monks, the not seeing of which keeps you bound. What is that one thing? The truth of suffering. We do everything we can to push it away. All of these strategies of denial or pretense or euphemisms, distractions through the busyness of our lives, all of the media that we have access to, Many people use intoxicants or drugs to kind of numb out because of this pain, because of this existential pain. And defense mechanisms, pushing away, it, you know, denial, it shouldn't be this way, or it's their fault I feel this way, or it's this situation that's a problem, really not looking at our, our um, relationship to that. These strategies don't work, have you noticed? If they did, we wouldn't be here. No problem solved. But the Buddha really saw it was deeper than that and that we need to actually open to this truth in such a way that there isn't friction with it, that we don't give ourselves what's called the second dart. The first dart is just the old age sickness and death. That will happen. The second dart is where we say it shouldn't happen. Why me? Why now? Why in this form? we see, we understand that this is the nature of things, that there is suffering inherent in this human life. And so we understand it and we have acceptance and there can be then equanimity. That great line, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. When we see in this deep and clear way. And one of the powerful things about this, the Buddha's teaching on the Four Noble Truths is he didn't just set it out as a list. You know, if you want to be a card-carrying Buddhist, here, there are these four things, believe them. Write them down, carry them in your pocket, and then problem solved. Each one actually has a practice. The practice for dukkha is that it needs to be understood, that we need to understand suffering. We need to open to it. This retreat, as the words flashed across and I thought, no, don't say that, is a dukkha factory. <laughs> you know, not in that way, you know, we're not deliberately causing it, but because we're here and what the mind sees again and again is all the ways we experience dukkha, physically, emotionally, on all these different levels. 
but really to see it as a noble dukkha factory, that we're actually opening to it to find a way out of suffering on all these different levels, on the most extreme or gross levels, or the most subtle, on a personal level or an impersonal level. This is not a philosophical stance that you just believe. Here in practice, practicing the Dhamma, there's the opportunity to have this direct experience of what this is and to see it as a doorway to freedom, the opening to the understanding of it. Looking at these questions, what causes suffering? What causes me suffering? How do I cause my own suffering through my misunderstanding of the way things are, the truth of things? So in answer to this question of how do we, what causes our suffering, how do we cause our own suffering, the Buddha's answer was in this cause, the cause of our illness was desire, tanha in the Pali. And we've, we've talked about suffering, we've talked about desire, but they're so central. They can always bear talking about a little more. This word tanha literally means thirst. And of course, it includes in it, even though we think of tanha, of desire, of the grasping onto, it includes the pushing away, because in that we're also getting stuck on something, even as we push it away. And uh, I've been reading this great book called The Island. Um, it's a compilation and a commentary on all of the Buddha's teachings on Nibbana by Ajahn's Pasano and Amaro from um, Abhayagiri Monastery. It's actually available free, it's a dana book, and available in its entirety on the web. And it's just a great source for, for information and teachings about this. And so some of what I'll say tonight has come from my reading of this book. They talked about um, a lot of the imagery in the Buddha's teachings, and again, putting it in the context of India. And then as now, it's a very hot country a lot of the time. So fire and heat are, are just naturally seen as sources of suffering, and that coolness is a source of relief. We'll get into that later. So the Buddha often used this imagery to convey the fire of desire, the fires of passion. And there's this famous discourse called the Fire Sermon that he actually gave to this huge crowd of practitioners who'd been fire worshippers. That was their belief that somehow worshiping fire was the way to awakening. He converted them all to the Dhamma, and then he gave this amazing discourse where he said, everything is burning, everything is on fire. What is burning? The eye is burning, the ear is burning, the nose is burning, tongue, taste, touch is burning, the mind is burning. What is it burning with? The fires of passion, the fire of hatred, the fire of delusion, burning with birth, aging and death, with sorrow, lamentation, grief and despair, and went on to lay out the possibility of the extinguishing of that fire, the extinguishing of that passion. And as these stories go, the thousand bhikkhus were all fully enlightened on hearing this. May it be so for you too. <laughs> I'm not giving it quite as per persuasively as the Buddha did, perhaps. But it, this imagery of, of the passions of desire being like a fire is throughout the suttas. 
And he talked about the three main forms of desire. The desire, again, that we're very familiar with, of, of sense pleasures, of wanting pleasant things. But there's also the desire for becoming, bhava tanha, which is that coming into the sense of self and holding on to it, however we're conceiving of ourselves, as young or old, a woman, a man, good or bad. You know, today I'm a good meditator, the next day I'm a, a terrible meditator. A mother or a father, however it be, a kind person, a judgmental person, that's bhavatanha. And then the opposite, vibhavatanha, which is this wishing out of existence, pushing away, denying all the ways we actually can say we're not good enough, wishing our experience away, pushing things away. Even self-judgment is a form of vibhavatanha, that I'm not good enough. All these operations of desire. But it's often hard to recognize this movement of desire because it's so beguiling and we're so used to following its siren call. It is the thing that leads us often throughout the day, following our desires. Sharon Salzberg, who often teaches here, tells that great story about walking through a marketplace somewhere in Asia and you know the vendors often call out and this man calling, I have what you want. You know, she hadn't even spoken to him. I have what you want. It's just that we hear that. I have what you want. I have what you're looking for. We want that. Where this thirst, this hunger is always present in us. And so we always think that there's somewhere or something, some experience, even some body out there that's going to make us happy. And we've had this thought before, and we've seen that it didn't work. But our sincere belief, it's just because we didn't get it right. We didn't get the right thing. We didn't do it the right way. This time it'll be different. And we don't, of course, consciously think this. But if you look underneath at that movement of mind, that's the belief that's there, that this is going to do it. This is what's going to make the difference, that this one will be permanent. This one will make me happy. I see myself do it time and time again. And in the relating to object experience in this way, we very rarely think of the flaws, of the problems, of the difficulties. I mean, sometimes we do, but when we're lost in that real uh, lust for something, we don't. And then we get the experience and it's like, hmm, not exactly as good as I thought it was going to be, or see these problems with it. I mean, how long does it take a new car to become just a car, a means of transport. A little while ago, this is when these things happened, uh, a friend of ours came into a lot of money through um, a startup company. Fortunately, those days seem to be somewhat over, but that could change. But, you know, so typically what so many people do, went out and bought the car of his dreams, you know, the bright red shiny Porsche, top of the line, really spent a lot of money. It's like, now, got this thing. Three weeks later, he turned it back in. He gave, I mean, he lost a lot of money. He gave it back to, they gave him some money back, but he lost a lot. It was so much pain in having this car and worrying about it. Every time he drove, it's like, I hope nothing happens, and having to park in the far end of the lot so no one parked near, and the whole time he's doing anything else, there's this thought, how's my car? Is my car okay? <laughs> he just didn't, couldn't abide it. He gave the car back. It wasn't worth it. 
And just this morning in the staff room, I got a piece of news which to me meant literally nothing. And I'm hoping that it's not disturbing to the, any of you out here. I'm getting the sense, probably not, but there's a guy on staff who's a great Red Sox fan. Really, like, passionate, one of these people, totally in it. Well, the Red Sox made the playoffs. And so he started wearing his Red Sox shirt. And even that I commented on, he said, yeah, it's kind of a drag, actually, because it's really uncomfortable, but, you know, I have to wear it. Well, the bad news is the Red Sox lost the playoffs yesterday. Sorry, didn't mean anything to me. But I saw this guy this morning. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. And he said, you know, I'm actually relieved. It was, <laughs> it was so painful to hold the hope that they might win and to go game after game, and I think they lost in three, um, and, and know that even if they won that third game, they'd have to win another game, and then another game, and then another playoff. He said, I couldn't bear it. I'm actually happy that they lost, because it was too painful to hold on to this desire that they would win. This is the force of desire, and he was uh, you know, aware enough to see it. How many disappointed Red Sox fans do you think are out there right now, just totally lost in that, that sense of disappointment? But of course we can experience pleasure in life. It's not to deny that, not to deny the joys and the happiness of life, but to see that what actually we're enjoying is the, not so much the getting of the object, but the ending of the fire of the desire for it. To really start to look at that in your own direct experience and to see how here on, re on retreat, there's not that many avenues for desire. But I bet you found a ton, right? You know, just within a day of all the different things that make you happy. I was uh, not long ago speaking to a monk, one of my teachers, and I said, you know, it's so much easier for you. You don't have a choice about what to wear or what to eat, you know, eat, wear the robes, eat what's given. And he said, don't think that. He said, we still have the same amount of desire. It's just pointed to fewer objects. And so it was just interesting to see that desire is such a force. It's just a nicer bowl or better robes or whatever it might be. This is how strong the force is. The wisdom of the, of the Dhamma is to see this, and this is amazing when we do, to see the force of desire as separate from the object. We, we put them together, we see them as, as inseparable. We cannot distinguish. But once we start to see that, once we start to let that go and, and see that difference, it, we can develop a really different relationship to desire. It doesn't mean that it won't still get activated, especially as lay people, where we, we live in a sense realm, but we can have a very different relationship to it. The practice of the second noble truth is that the cause of suffering is to be abandoned. That sounds extreme, but we abandon it not out of aversion, but out of seeing that for ourselves how much suffering it causes by holding on, by holding to this belief that getting whatever it is is going to bring us happiness. So there's this natural letting go, this natural renunciation. I really see desire as like this huge spotlight. You know, I was in LA once where they have a lot of those vroom, vroom, you know, just beaming these megawatt lights up into the sky. Don't you sometimes feel it's like that? It's just looking for somewhere to land, looking for somewhere to land. 
That kind of power can have. The Buddha's example, the Buddha's solution is take out the bulb. Maybe, and maybe we can't quite take out that megawatt bulb just, let, yet, just yet. We can certainly put in a lower wattage bulb. How about a higher efficiency bulb? You know, they're cooler than the normal bulbs. Just working with this force of desire, especially as we see it causes its suffering. And to see that there, there isn't the kind of happiness, the permanent lasting happiness to be found out there in objects. So where is it? Where is this happiness to be found? What is the cure for this illness, this disease? Again, the Buddha's answer is it's in Nibbana, the ending of suffering, the ending of greed, of aversion, of delusion. And this is the, the central part of this teaching, is it's possible. As pervasive as suffering is, as deeply entrenched as the cause of desire is, it's possible to end it. It's possible to find freedom. Again, um, thinking back to the time of the Buddha, this word Nibbana literally means to cool. I spoke earlier about these imageries of fire being a, a source of suffering, heat, the passions. Nibbana literally means to cool. As prosaic as in Pali or the language of the time, you would say Nibbana the rice until it's ready to eat. Cool the rice. So it had this very everyday kind of connotation, but one that was very pleasant in this land of great heat. The other um, understanding or translation of it is unbinding. So it's you know, putting out the fires of desire, but it's not annihilating them. It's not you know, pouring huge buckets of cold water with this sense of aversion. It's this letting go. It's this releasing. Again, the imagery is not so much stamping out the fire as letting the fuel diminish, taking away the fuel of the fire. So the fire just naturally subsides. Again, in India, there was a sense, and we can experience it today, of course, of, as fire being agitated. Fire, in, you know, if you look at a fire, it's, it's always moving and consuming and active and burning. And just this sense of letting it go out, letting it calm, letting it cool. This is the possibility of Nibbana. So the Buddha used these kind of imageries, images to convey Nibbana because he often said it's, it's it's beyond this conditioned realm. He, and he usually talked about what it is not rather than what it is, because as soon as you put a word on something, the mind grasps it and makes it a thing, another experience to be gotten. So again, another t skillful teaching uh, technique that he used was to talk about what it wasn't rather than what it was. But in the island, it's so great to have collected all of these references, both from the canon, but also later commentaries, more recent teachings on, on this um, experience, this possibility of Nibbana, and to see how much the Buddha actually talked about it and what it was he said about this possibility 
that was there for all of us. One of the lines I love is that Nibbana is visible in this life, immediate, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. So not some mysterious transcendent state, immediate, comprehensible, inviting, attractive. This is the possibility of Nibbana, of the ending of greed, aversion, and delusion. One of the quotes I like from the Udana about this possibility is this. One who is dependent has wavering. One who is independent has no wavering. There being no wavering, there is calm. There being calm, there is no desire. There being no desire, there is no coming or going. There being no coming or going, there is no passing away or arising. There being no passing away or arising, there is neither a here, nor a there, nor an in-between, the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. Neither a here, nor a there, nor an in-between, the two. Really taking away any sense of landing, but this is the end of suffering. Also from the Udana, this world is anguished being exposed to contact. Even what the world calls self is in fact unsatisfactory. For no matter upon what it conceives its conceits of identity, the fact is ever other than that which it conceives. The world which is, whose being is to become other is committed to being, is exposed to being, relishes only being, yet that which it relishes brings fear. And what it fears is pain. Now this holy life is lived to abandon suffering. Whatever states of being there are, of any kind, anywhere, all are impermanent, pain-haunted, and subject to change. One who sees this as it is, thus abandons craving for existence without relishing non-existence. This remainderless, fading, cessation, Nibbana comes with the utter ending of all craving. So it's so powerful to see whatever the very basis of our relationship, our desire for the world, is ever other than that which it conceives. And the things that we're most holding on to are what causes us suffering. But seeing the true nature of existence of reality, its impermanence, its unsatisfactoriness, there's no solidity there, no solid self, there's a possibility of coming to the end of suffering. And then there's this beautiful list in the Samyutta, the 33 synonyms for Nibbana. I'll just read them. The cessation of greed, of hatred, and delusion is this. The unformed, the unconditioned, the end, the taintless, the truth, the other shore, the subtle, the very hard to see, the unweakening, the everlasting, 
the undisintegrating, the invisible, the undiversified, peace, the deathless, the supreme goal, the blessed, safety, exhaustion of craving, the wonderful, the marvelous, non-distress, nibbana, non-affliction, the fading of lust, purity, freedom, independence of reliance, the island, the shelter, the harbor, the refuge, the beyond. The island, the harbor, the shelter, the refuge, the beyond. So this third noble truth, the truth of Nibbana, immediate, inviting, comprehensible by the wise, is to be directly experienced. This is what the Buddha tells us to do. We don't have to wait for full enlightenment to experience it. Often what he is talking about is the complete ending of greed, aversion, and delusion, that full enlightenment. But to see for yourself this possibility, to see this direct experience of a moment that is free of these fires of passion, when there is mindfulness, equanimity, openness, that is a moment of freedom. Mightn't be complete, mightn't be lasting, but we know those moments. I love this quote, people have used it before from Ajahn Chah, let go a little, a little peace. Let go a lot, a lot of peace. Let go completely, complete peace. And I know Carol talked about the Buddhadasa teaching on temporary Nibbana, where he says it's, it's so important, we've all known it, or else we would have gone mad by now if we hadn't had those moments of this refreshment, this letting go, this stillness, this simplicity. And even for yourself here on retreat, to pay attention to the times when desire ends, when that contraction, when that force, when that wanting, for whatever reason, ends through wisdom, just naturally lets go, through impermanence, it, it disappears. Notice those moments. Notice what they're like. When the mind lets go, what is there when we let go of that wanting, that force of desire? We have the opportunity here to experience that over and over again if the mindfulness stays present. It's not that far away available, immediate, inviting. Luckily for us, the Buddha gave us a path of practice to realize Nibbana. This is the treatment, the medicine for our illness, the noble eightfold path, the fourth noble truth. And again, I just think it's amazing his vision, the breadth of his vision of piercing to the heart of the human condition seeing the possibility for himself and knowing it could be true for others of ending that, and then laying out this path of practice. The Eightfold Path includes everything, from the deepest meditative states to the everyday experience of our relationships and how we are with ourselves in each other. It's references to understanding, understanding the Dhamma, understanding the truth of things, wise action, and sila, and livelihood, and speech, and then the deepest meditative attainment. So it's not some abstract belief system. It's not some ideal 
that we have to kind of hold distant. It's actually how we live our lives and what we do to develop in meditation. Each of the um, parts of the Eightfold Path is prefaced by this word Samma, so Samma Ditti or Samma Samadhi. This word Samma in, from Pali is usually translated as right, so right intention, right, right understanding, etc. But sometimes we can feel that that's a bit too dualistic, right and wrong. It really means more true, whole, complete, or conducive to liberation. And true, again, not in the sense of true or false, but true as in a good direction, like true north. This practice, this path, is what will lead us in the right direction. And again, this is from The Island, the book. People often find a paradox in this. If the goal Nibbana is by definition uncaused, unconditioned, how can a path of practice, which is causal by nature, bring it about? In the text, the monk Nagasena replies to this question with an analogy. He says, the path of practice doesn't cause Nibbana, it simply takes you there. Just as a road to a mountain does not cause the mountain to come into being, it simply leads you to where it already is. And so we undertake this path of practice. The practice of the Fourth Noble Truth is the Eightfold Path is to be developed. This is what we do. We develop these beautiful qualities of right understanding, intention, speech, action, and livelihood, right effort, mindfulness, and concentration. There are a whole, more than a whole talk in themselves. Maybe we'll touch on some of these in the coming days of the retreat. But just to see the Buddha offers this open-handedly, there is a path that goes in one direction only, towards freedom. And this is what we're practicing here. In all of its aspects, we're practicing the Noble Eightfold Path. We're practicing this path that leads to freedom, leads to awakening, goes in one direction only. So I want to finish with the words of Ajahn Sumedho, who gives such powerful, simple, and direct teachings on the Four Noble Truths and Nibbana. He says, just seeing anicca, dukkha, and anatta is limited to the conditioned realm. It is not the end of the path, Nibbana. But don't hold Nibbana up as some high ideal. Then we don't realize it when it's present. Bring Nibbana to the here and now, the point that includes everything. Nibbana is non-grasping. We just have to know what non-grasping is to recognize attachment when it happens. It's like this. You don't have to throw everything away to prove you're not non-attached. You just have to recognize attachment when it happens and non-attachment when it happens. It's like this. This is possible for all of us in any moment, this relinquishing, this cooling, this calming, this peace, the peace of Nibbana. So let's just sit for a moment.
Ibana is the unformed, the unconditioned, the end, the truth, the other shore, the subtle, the everlasting, the invisible, the undiversified, peace, the deathless, the blessed, safety, the wonderful, the marvelous, Nibbana, purity, freedom, the island, the refuge, the beyond. Thank you for your attention.